Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, you a, will, will, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, I see some new faces here. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Xiang, and I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Uh, and it's a joy and privilege and a delight to deliver God's word to you this morning. Um, so I, I shared sometime last year in a sermon that Rebecca and I bought a house a few years ago. But, you know, one of the things that I never thought about when it comes to homeownership was lawn care. I never thought I'd be one of those guys who really cared about, like, having pristine, lush grass on my yard. But as we pass by, like, different homes in our neighborhood, and as we visit people's homes that have, like, immaculate grass, I want it, right? I'm, like, I'm starting to want it. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or something. I thought it was for retired folks, but I'm starting to want good grass, immaculate grass on my own yard. I think something so satisfying about like seeing lush grass in front of your house, right? It just makes your house look more inviting, welcoming, more full, right? Because when I come back to my house, I'm like, what is this desert of a yard that we have in our house, right? Really sad. So I want, a, I want good grass. I want a good lawn. I want, a, I want grass that Danielle can roll around in, even though she probably never will, right? I want that Psalm 23 grass. He makes me lie down in green pastures kind of grass, right? 
But here's my problem. Here's my problem. I want this pristine grass, but I have no idea how to do landscaping, nor do I have much experience in it. And I also don't want to spend money hiring people. So we've just been praying for good grass. No, just kidding. But, but I've had to ask people in our church uh, for some help. And I've also done some research because an important season is coming up. It's springtime. Springtime. That's when the grass that was once dormant starts to wake up and it comes back alive. Right? But the thing is, in order to prep the grass for it to wake up again, there's actually a good amount of work that you have to do to nurse the grass out of its dormancy. And, and this is, these are some of the things that I found that you have to do. First, the lawn needs to be raked to get all the junk off, all the debris, all the leaves and the branches. The soil also has to be aerated by poking thousands of holes in the ground so that the soil has room to breathe and room to expand, especially if it has been compacted by foot traffic. Right? You also need to do what is called overseeding. You need to seed in places that have bare patch of ground. You also need to apply pre-emergent weed killers so that weeds don't crop up in your, in your yard. You also, some people, you know, if you want to be extra, you go through a pH test to test the soil's acidity to ensure optimal you know, acidity or whatever they're looking for. Last but not least, it also needs fertilizers. You know how you get that thick, lush grasses? You need to give it nutrients, and that comes through fertilizers. So, <laughs> you know, all that to say, right, the lawn has to go through a lot, right? It's, it's a pretty tough process. It's arduous. It's kind of grueling, but it has to go through a lot to be renewed for the new season. And all I'm going to say is I ain't doing all of that, right? I'm just hoping that we magically get healthy grass somehow. But, but I mention this because I think this is a picture of how God brings us out of our dormancy, right? Our own dormancy of our hearts. You see, in his wisdom, God takes us through difficult tough, grueling seasons and through trials so that our own apathetic hearts that are in deep slumber would come back alive and that it would be renewed to love him and to live for him again. And so here's, here's the main point of today's message. Right? There are seasons in our lives when God places trials in our lives so that we would wake up from our slumber and that is an act of God's mercy that leads us to repentance and renewal. Let me say that one more time. There are seasons when God places trials in our lives to wake us from our slumber. And this is an act of God's mercy that leads us to repentance and renewal. And I'll break this down into three points. Number one, our spiritual slumber. Number two, God's response to our slumber and number three, God's mercy despite our slumber. So number one, our spiritual slumber. So the book of Jonah is interesting in that, like unlike the other minor prophet books, like the book of Zechariah that Pastor Paul just finished, there's not a lot of quoting what God said. It's not a lot of thus says the Lord. But actually, it's, it's a story. It's, it's, a, it's mostly a narrative about a prophet that we don't know much about except that he appears one time, one other time in 2 Kings 14. But I think in obscuring this Jonah figure, I think there's some wisdom here from God. You see, by, by, by making Jonah this, this vague, obscure character, he not only serves as a, a representation of 
rebellious Israel at that point in history, but I think he also serves as a reflection of our own sinful tendencies in our own lives. You see, there, there are many lessons to learn from the life of Jonah. And we see here in today's, today's passage in verses 1 and 2, we see God calling Jonah to do what prophets are called to do, carry forth God's word to its intended target, carry God's message, whether it's a message of blessing or a message of curse. So in this case, right, God tells Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh, which is the capital or the heart of the Assyrian Empire at that time, the powerhouse, the big shots, right, the, the, the powerful nation at the time, and he tells them to go preach a message of judgment. But what do we see? Instead of arising to go to Nineveh, we see Jonah rise and flee to Tarshish. And what's interesting here is that Tarshish is actually located, scholars would put it, in modern-day Spain, roughly. But here's the problem. Nineveh, scholars put it at modern-day Iraq. So if Israel is like smack dab in the middle, right, God tells Jonah to go east, but what does he do? He goes the complete opposite direction. He's running away as far as he can. And the text also cares to tell us that he runs away from the presence of the Lord. You see, and what this tells us is that it's not that Jonah doesn't know what he's doing, right? It's not like, oh, shoot, I got on the wrong boat. Oh, shoot, I got on the wrong train. Oh, shoot, my Apple Vision Pro told me to go this way. No, right? What this is telling us is that he knowingly, purposefully, intentionally disobeyed God and ditches his service to the Lord. If he were in the military, he'd be considered a deserter. He deserted his office. But why? Why does he go through such lengths to escape God and his will? Well, we find out later in the book, it's because that he didn't want the Assyrians to hear God's message of judgment. Why? Because that they might repent and be saved. Well, why doesn't he want them to be saved? Because he hates the Assyrians. Not only because they're evil, unrighteous, pagan outsiders, but also because they pose a threat to the Israelite kingdom. And knowing God's merciful, compassionate character, Jonah couldn't stand to see God's mercy displayed to these wicked, undeserving pagan outsiders. So what does he do? He runs. He runs. And I think... Um, one of the things that we can kind of glean from what Jonah did was the fact, was, is the fact that his disobedience is actually the product of a deeper issue, right? What you see on the surface stems from something that goes much deeper. In this case, you see, in his heart, he didn't believe that God had Israelites' best interest in mind. He didn't believe that the Ninevites deserved God's mercy, but maybe worst of all, he didn't believe that God knew what he was doing. He questioned and doubted God's wisdom, God's goodness, God's faithfulness to the Israelites. In other words, what Jonah's struggling with is something that many of us struggle with. It's the sin of unbelief. You see, his heart refused to believe that God's will and his plan were good or right or even wise 
while believing that he himself knew better. If I were God, I wouldn't have done that. If I were God, I wouldn't have saved the Ninevites. So really, his running away was just a product of a heart that had grown cold and bitter toward God himself. You see, Jonah's heart was set on Tarshish long before he actually made the journey. So going, going back to, you know, the lawn uh, illustration, uh, one of the main reasons actually why I, I want to work on our yard is because, you know, one day we started seeing all sorts of weeds pop up. You know, like, it's like variety. It's like a forest, a jungle at times during the summer if we don't take care of it. You know, but, but the worst offender to me is crabgrass. I don't know if you guys know what that is. It's like weed that looks like grass. It's like an imposter, right? But you can tell because it's thicker than the average grass, impossible to pull out, and they just spread like wildfire, right? It infests your yard like no other. But when it comes to weed, this is something that I learned. You think that weeds come out of nowhere? You think that just by happenstance, like a seed landed and it sprouted? But actually, the fact that the weeds have sprouted means that long before the seeds ever touched the ground, your soil was unhealthy. One, one major thing I learned about lawn care is lawn care equals soil care. And this makes sense, right? Because the soil is the foundation of your lawn. So in a similar way, right? If the soil of our hearts was already eroding, right, had already been eroding in unbelief, guess what? Of course it will bear unhealthy fruit. Of course it will bear unhealthy fruit. In other words, right, our pattern of disobedience and living in sin with no sense of remorse, with no desire to repent, may be symptoms of a heart that is already hardened, heart that is already eroded, heart that is already deep asleep. And like the crabgrass, what seems harmless at first grows and grows and grows. And before you know it, your, your heart is unrecognizable, like your lawn is un unrecognizable. You see, when we start believing that God's desire for our holiness is too suffocating and too restrictive, that God doesn't really have our best interests in mind, that he doesn't really offer much in the, in the realm of, you know, like security, comfort, and pleasure, we will start thinking, is getting drunk or my sexual sins, my addictions, my living in envy, coveting, really that bad? Does God really have more to offer than these things? We will start to question him. We will start to doubt. And we will start falling more and more into these sins. You know, when we start believing that my time, my resources, my possessions are not gifts from God for me to manage, but they're mine, my hard-earned money, my hard-earned time, me, 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 guess what? We will start lacking generosity and even the conviction to serve or care for those around us because we've grown so inward. And when we start believing that, yeah, sure, yeah, you know, I'm saved by grace, but I'm definitely still better than that person. I'm definitely more righteous than her. My goodness, I don't know. I don't know how she's a Christian, how he's a Christian, if that's what we start to believe, we will have a harder time putting up with and loving those around us through ministry and even dealing with those maybe who we don't get along with, who we don't like. You see, our unbelief in the Lord, many times, it starts small and harmless at first, but left unchecked, 
and unchallenged, guess what happens? It grows and grows and grows and multiplies to the point that you don't even feel the need for God, God anymore because you've effectively become the God of your own life. Your heart has become so hardened towards the Lord. And before you know it, what was subtle in your heart shows itself over time in the form of spiritual apathy and indifference towards God and others. I mean, look at what the text tells us about Jonah, right? And by the way, these ancient authors knew what they're doing. They're very clever writers, and they, they employ a lot of literary devices that, that are, in my opinion, really clever and helps us. Uh, and the author tells us multiple times from verse 1 through 5 that Jonah went down to Joppa, the port city. He paid the fare and went down to the ship. And by the time the storm hits, he had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and, and, and was fast asleep. You see, what, what the author is trying to do is describe the process of Jonah's spiritual apathy. And in a way, it's a representation of how we become apathetic, right? You see, most of the time, spiritual apathy doesn't just come all of a sudden. Like the weeds, it doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. But you see, it's a progressive descent. It's a progressive descent of that one small compromise leading to another, that one neglect and ignorance of God's word to another, one excuse for our sin to another. And before you know it, you're just in a place where you don't even seek God anymore, where God is irrelevant in your life. And so I think God, through this text, really wants us to examine our own hearts. So let me ask you, when was the last time you desired to live for the Lord? Or let me put it this way, when's the last time you desired the Lord in general? When was the last time that his gospel of grace led you to acknowledge your sins and, and given you the desire to turn from them? In other words, when's the last time you genuinely felt the desire to repent, to want to hate your sin, to run from it, and feel a deep sorrow for your pattern of disobedience in your life? Well, if it's been a while since your heart burned for the Lord, yearned for his presence in your life, if it's been a while since you genuinely went before the Lord in repentance of your sin, it may be that you are in a place of spiritual slumber. It may be that your hearts have been hardened and you're in the inner part of the ship, deep asleep. But thankfully, right, through the story of Jonah, we can also see that there is hope because God does not leave us in our slumber. And this brings us to our second point. Number two, God's response to our slumber. So Jonah's on his way to Tarshish, and verse 4 tells us that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So, you know, in our, in our translation, it says hurl, but the Hebrew word is actually to throw. So what this is telling us is that the Lord literally threw a storm into the sea to disturb Jonah's journey. So you can imagine, and as we, as we see in the passage, that there's chaos that ensues, right? There's pandemonium on deck as the pagan sailors are scrambling to save their lives by crying out each to their own gods and throwing out the cargo to lighten the load. But all, while all this is happening, what's Jonah doing? Right? It tells us that Jonah is doing the exact opposite because he went down to the inner part of the ship, he lay down, and he was fast asleep. Right, meaning he was in deep sleep. He was hitting that REM sleep. You know? And some translations actually tell us that Jonah went down 
when the storm hit, as if to really say, I really don't care, God. I really don't care. But the storm grew so bad that the captain physically had to come down to the inner part and wake Jonah up by yelling at him. And he says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. And we can roughly translate that as, what's the matter with you, O sleeper? Get up and call out to the Lord. And here we start to see God's heart for Jonah because he would have been perfectly just. He would have been perfectly right to let Jonah stay stay as this runaway prophet doomed for judgment and for death. But you see, God intervenes. He intervenes by bringing a major storm to disturb Jonah's journey and his descent. And he even uses the pagan sailors to wake him up, not just out of his physical slumber, but ultimately his spiritual slumber. And I think we can make the case that this is how God also operates in our lives here in 2024. You see, not all trials and suffering are a result of our apathy. It's not because, you know, not necessarily because we're apathetic. We may not be apathetic. Job wasn't apathetic, and yet he still suffered. But many times, right, God uses trials to shake us and to wake us who may be apathetic in our hearts. You know, how many, how many times have you heard testimonies and grace stories of those who went through unexpected seasons of hardship, like health scares? or death in, in, in the family, or, or those near and dear to them, you know, or major job, or financial insecurity, or just this nagging, continual marital struggle and family issues that forced them to seek the Lord like never before. You see, when people realize that they're not really in control of their lives, when people really realize that they're not that strong as they thought, and when people realize that they're not that capable as they once thought they were, that's when you are forced to seek the Lord. You're, you're cornered, right? You're pushed to the edge of the cliff, and that's when you start praying out of desperation. So you see, God could have left us in a spiritual slumber, in our continuous state of rebellion, apathy, and hardened hearts, going down this journey to Tarshish with no care or desire for him. But what does he do? Instead of giving us what we deserve, he mercifully and graciously pursues after our hearts through trials. You see, he is speaking loudly through our struggles. He is shaking us, figuratively rocking our boat so that we will not remain the same, so that we will not remain in our apathy, so that we will not remain in our sin. You see, it is he who speaks through the words of the pagan sailor to our own hearts. What's the matter with you, O sleeper? Get up and call out to me. So last year, you know, I shared a bit about my experience with um, my mental health struggle in a, in a, in a sermon that shook me um, <laughs> and left me paralyzed for a season. And, and that season really forced me to rethink a lot of things in life. I had to reevaluate a lot. But one of the major realizations uh, that I had through that season was the fact that I had my priorities all mixed up. You see... I started out my corporate career as a means to pay for my seminary education, as a means to support my pursuit of my call to ministry. But what started out as like this genuine, innocent, passionate, you know, earnest desire to obey the Lord and his call for me actually became its own obsession. You see, as I grew in my corporate experience, 
as I grew and, you know, in my corporate experience and climbing the corporate ladder, as well as also my ministry experience, I, I started finding myself wanting the best of both worlds. I, I, I felt myself getting greedy. Right? I wanted success in the corporate. I wanted all the acknowledgments in the corporate. I also want success and acknowledgement in ministry. So, so this actually led me to you know, work like tirelessly, going 150% in both areas of my life, slowly burning myself out while neglecting to genuinely and earnestly seek the Lord. Because at the end of the day, it, it became about me, my own pursuit, my successes, my abilities, and God took a backseat to my career. And that, it's kind of ironic, right? Because you think about ministry, it's like doing the Lord's work for his people. But even that became about my own abilities and my own successes. You see, the whole, this, the, that whole time, the whole season, I convinced myself that I was making the journey to, to Nineveh in obedience to the Lord while my heart was actually set on Tarshish. See, I had grown so cold and hardened to the Lord that I didn't even know what it looked like to desire him and seek after his grace for my life. But it was at the right time, right? It was at the perfect moment when God placed a major storm in my life in the form of an unexpected struggle with anxiety caused by my burnout so that I can wake up from my deep spiritual slumber. And that was his mercy for me. And it worked. It really worked because it not only led me back to the Lord in desperation to seek him in ways that I hadn't done in a long time, but it also got me back on track to obey his call in the pursuit of ministry. And it forced me to let go of my desires, successes, and personal ambitions in other areas of my life. So you see, God, through trials, often leads us to a place of repentance, a deep acknowledgement of our sins and the desire to not remain the same to no longer remain apathetic. And we also see this in Jonah because his posture also starts to change in verse 12. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. You see, we start to see a small acknowledgement of his wrongdoing. We start to see him slowly waking up from his spiritual slumber. And this is how God works many times. He brings storms so that we will wake up. Let me ask you, have you experienced storms, the trials of life as of late? You know, are you dealing with unexpected hardships that just feel like it's pummeling you season after season? Or are you still, still dealing with issues that have kept nagging at you whether it's family, finances, relationships, friendships, ministry, that, that just won't seem to stop? Have you been feeling so frustrated at how difficult life can be? Have you been feeling how hard life is? Has it been unbearable? Well, if that's you, would you please consider that God may be at work in you, in your heart, to soften your hardened, apathetic heart? Would you consider 
that he perhaps is drawing out the deep sins in your heart, the, the unbelief that you didn't even know you had until you encountered this particular struggle? Would you consider that God is maybe calling you to a season of repentance for the ways that you have ignored him and the way that you have refused to live in obedience to him? Would you consider that God is saying, what's the matter with you, O sleeper? Get up and call out to me. I really hope that you can take seasons like these to, to seek the God of mercy and recommit yourself to him and in service to him. And, and please don't waste these opportunities. Please don't waste these trials and these seasons of suffering. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, for the Lord is speaking to you in his word ever so loudly through your struggles. And if you've been on the sidelines for a while, or if you're on the fence about serving church, I pray that the God of mercy will convict you to seek and find ways to meaningfully serve his people. Because joy is really found when we serve something greater than ourselves. Or if you've been serving, but you feel like you lost your purpose, or maybe even grown bitter and indifferent towards whom you're serving, I pray that God will rekindle your love for ministry, for people, and ultimately for him. But here's a reality, right? Until we truly understand the depth of God's mercy for our lives, we, we won't be motivated. Until we understand just how merciful God is to us, we won't feel indebted to him. We will not be motivated to respond. So we need a clearer view of who our God is. And this brings us to our last point, number three. God's mercy despite our slumber. So verse 15 uh, of our text today tells us that despite all that the pagan sailors tried to do to save everyone on board, um, they had no choice but to throw Jonah off the, off the ship because that was God's sovereign plan, that Jonah should meet his judgment through the raging sea. So what happens? Right? The sea immediately calmed down and the lives of the pagan sailors were spared. And this could have been a perfectly just ending. Right? This could have been like, the story about a runaway prophet who got what he deserves. It could have ended there, but it doesn't. The book continues. And in verse 17, we see that God sends a fish to swallow up Jonah so that he would be saved. You see, this is God's mercy for Jonah. The runaway prophet whose life was spared despite his blatant disobedience and rejection of God's authority you see, ironically, even before the Ninevites, it's Jonah, it's Jonah who needs God's mercy before anyone else. You see, he's the one who truly didn't get what he deserved. He's the one that was truly spared from God's just judgment. Isn't this how God works even in our lives? Right? Doesn't this sound familiar? You see, despite our spiritual apathy, despite our continued disobedience, apathy, unbelief, and running away from the Lord's presence, running away from, in, from serving him, how is it that we can sit here before the throne of God to worship him, to sing these praises to him, to pray, lift up our requests to him, to hear the, the words of his blessing preached to us? How is it that we can stand here not condemned, not punished for our unbelief? 
It's because God shows us mercy, right? It's because God shows us mercy by not giving us what we justly deserve. But the reality is, right, our sins have price tags on them. Our unbelief has, has a price that, that has to be paid for. You see, they have to be paid for because God is a just God. There is no mercy without justice. There is no mercy without justice. And if God were to just let us free without paying for our sins, then he would be an unjust God. But here's the good news. Here's the good news for us. Here's our hope. God in his infinite mercy chose to pour out his just wrath on his own son, Jesus Christ, the better Jonah, who willingly gave his life so that runaway, apathetic sinners like us would be saved. You see, unlike rebellious Jonah, who ran from God's will and yet was still saved, Jesus perfectly obeyed all that the Father commanded and yet still died a sinner's death. How is that fair? How is that fair? Unlike Jonah, who begrudgingly became the instrument of God's mercy for the Ninevites, (laughs) Hebrews tells us that Jesus considered it a joy to endure his suffering on the cross so that we would be saved. And unlike Jonah, whose sacrifice may have saved the pagan sailors from their physical death for a time, but had no power to save them from their spiritual death, Jesus' once and for all sacrifice raises us to a new life and breathes into us new hope. The Bible tells us that we are a new creation. Because Jesus went through judgment, we are shown mercy. And you see, this is why we can sit here confidently before God's presence, all because God's mercy for us in Jesus. Without that, we we have no hope. We have no chance. So if you ever have any doubts about God's goodness and faithfulness in your life, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as the evidence for God's love for you, God's care for you, God's goodness and faithfulness and his wisdom and his mercy for you in your life. So I pray that God's kindness and his mercy for us will soften our hearts and lead us to repentance, to turn from our old ways, to turn from our sins, to run from it, and to run toward God, and to trust in his grace once again. And as we lean upon the riches of his grace and his mercy, I pray that God would awaken our hearts to give us a fresh renewal of our faith and our desire to seek him like never before. And you see, this is our heart behind the revival that's coming up, right? A shameless plug. But, you know, our, our, it's not that we can conjure up revival in our hearts. But you see, what we're trying to do is express our desire to be renewed in our faith, express our desire to change, to be transformed, to seek the Lord in a fresh way once again, as our hearts may have been hardened during the COVID times, right? We want God to wake us up, not just as individuals, not just as a church, but this region as a whole, right? That is our desire. So brothers and sisters, if you've been discouraged about life and how hard it may have been, may the Lord give you a fresh perspective to see that he has not abandoned you. In fact, he is working in you. He cares for you.
He loves you. See, through trials, he not only displays his mercy, but is actively caring for your souls. He's building up your faith, and he's making you more and more like him day by day, making you more beautiful. So let's set our sights on the Lord. Let's run this race, clinging on to the cross of Christ, for we know that there is grace and mercy to be found there. Let's rise from our slumber, trust in his grace, trust in his wisdom, and let's ride out and live for our God who is worthy of our lives, worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the riches of your mercy that you have shown to apathetic sinners struggling with unbelief. We thank you that you are patient with us, ever investing in our growth, nurturing us through the storms of this life so that our faith will be strengthened, that we will be renewed in our desire to live for you once again. We thank you for Jesus, the better Jonah, who underwent judgment on our behalf so that we would be shown immense mercy, so that we who were once destined for death can be raised to life and have life abundant. Renew our desire to pursue after you and your will for our lives, and may you be praised and glorified all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.